Support for Design Matters Media is provided by Wix.com, which puts the creative power of building dynamic websites back into the hands of designers. As anyone who has spent time in a WYSIWYG platform knows, what you see isn't necessarily always what you get. On the flip side, for some, it's far too easy to get lost in code and lose the forest for the trees. Wix.com allows you to find your own personal sweet spot and take control of your site with their drag-and-drop editor, hundreds of advanced design features such as retina-ready image galleries, custom font sets, HD video, and parallax scrolling effects, and even serverless, hassle-free coding for robust websites and applications. With Wix.com, you have total control of your web design like never before. So join Wix's brilliant community of designers, artists, and creatives at large around the world for free and ask yourself, what will you create today? This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 14 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with author and editor Pamela Paul about books and book reviewing. At heart, a good book review is a good piece of writing. It should be not just a guide to, you know, should I read this or should I not? Here's Debbie Millman. Pamela Paul is the editor of the New York Times Book Review and oversees all the book coverage at the paper. She also hosts the Times podcast, The Book Review. That in and of itself would provide plenty of subjects for an interview, but there's more. Paul is also the author of a series of provocative books about family life in contemporary culture. She started with The Starter Marriage and the Future of Matrimony. Next came Pornified, How Pornography is Transforming Our Lives, Our Relationships, and Our Families. Her latest is something of a departure, but it too has an eye-catching title and lengthy subtitle. It's called My Life with Bob. Flawed heroine keeps book of books, plot ensues. Bob is what she calls the journal she has kept for 28 years about the books she has read. My Life with Bob is a book about books. Pamela Paul, welcome to Design Matters. Thanks for having me. Pamela, you recently gave up your electric toothbrush. There was nothing wrong with it. It was an upscale model, and when you used it, you felt certain that your teeth were not only getting cleaner and whiter, but were also perhaps even better aligned. What made you decide to go back to your lowly, old-timey toothbrush instead? Well, I think, like many people, I have a somewhat conflicted relationship with technology. Actually, maybe not all people. There are those people who are just, you know, the early adopters, full steam ahead, don't question anything. And and those are people who I can't relate to at (laughs) all. Um, But for me, um, you know, as my own work has become much more uh, digital and, and sort of technophilic, and it has to and it should, I've kind of offset it. It's like carbon offsets with um, by sort of weeding out unnecessary technology from my personal life. Um, so, you know, the toothbrush is a kind of obvious uh, and, and, and seemingly like low-tech example. But, it, you know, just in that small way of not having yet another kind of buzzy, loud noise in my ear every morning, it just felt like 
I'm actually involved in the process of brushing my teeth. And I do think now, having been off the electric toothbrush for uh, almost, I guess, about eight months, that my feet, my teeth, in fact, may be cleaner after all. Really? Well, I'm the one that's doing it, not, you know, a battery-operated uh, apparatus. I just read a book, actually. It, it in a way, uh, is a kind of design book. And, and Michael Beirut um, from Pentagram reviewed it for us on the cover. Um, and it was called Cruft um, by Alexander Langland. Um, and it's really about um, sort of how we have lost touch in our highly, you know, technological digital world with the way in which things are created and made and sort of how that process and how we're in, involved in that process and how important that is. And... Um, I found it very persuasive. I found myself, you know, wanting to start thatching roofs and, you know, building brooms and that kind of thing. Yeah, I recently dropped my electric toothbrush and as a result, it no longer works. And so I've been using it as a regular toothbrush. So now I'm actually thinking maybe I should just keep using it as a regular toothbrush. It's to like see a halfway if house. Exactly, exactly. It's a, it's a migration back to my lowly toothbrush again. Pamela, your mother named you after what is considered the first English novel, uh, Samuel Richardson's Pamela, published in 1740, and you grew up in a house built in 1673. That was your town's first library, I believe. It's almost too perfect. It's almost like your literary destiny was set out before you. Well, you know, there's always like the, the negative side of that. So I didn't know about Shamala, you know, when my mom named me that. But I found <laughs> the out parody. later on <laughs> yeah, that, that like, Pamela is one of the great annoying characters of literature. And um, in fact, I think that uh, that character influenced the sort of baby name dictionary that was the most popular when I was growing up. And I remember looking um, my name up in that dictionary and under Pamela, uh, when it said what the meaning was, you know, other names had these great meanings like Beatrice, bringer of joy, you know, but Pamela, it said selfish one. <gasps> I thought, really? Oh my um, goodness. Yes. Yes. So, um, and I, I think that probably came out of, out of Richardson's book. Um, and the house that I grew up in um, had been the town's first library. It was no longer functioning in that capacity um, when I lived in it. But it was it was an old and crumbly house. Um, the Hessians had slept in our den uh, during the Revolutionary War, and my house had been the a captain of the Navy's uh, house. Anyway. Um, for me, growing up, it was a, it was a kind of terrifying environment because there were it was so old and crumbly um, that there were parts of it that were kind of off limits, and one of those parts was the attic. That when I was growing up, and I weirdly grew up in a kind of book deprived environment, um, I was persuaded that hidden upstairs in the attic were all of these books and also Archie comics. You know, only the Betty and Veronica is like none of the bad Jugheads, but it was all up in the inaccessible. Attic. Why? Why was it inaccessible? Oh, it wasn't. It wasn't. This was all in my fantasy. Um, no, but I believed that there were like that the real that all of the treasures of the house were somehow hidden from me. Betty and Veronica. Yes. I grew up on Betty and Veronica as well. Yes, but never the Jugheads. No. Well, like Jughead them. just didn't interest me. He was too goofy and yeah. schlumpy. Um, but I understand the very first book your parents gave you was called The Pocket Book. Um, can you take us back to that moment and what you thought and felt about it? And how old were you? So I must have been about three or four. And The Pocket Book, you know, The Pocket Book is the kind of book that now that things are made cheaply in China, you know, every kid has like 20 of them. But back then, it was, and it was something truly extraordinary 
Korean special because it wasn't made out of cardboard. It was made out of fabric, like plush kind of fabric and sewn together. And on each page was a different kind of pocket, you know, like a snap and a button and a zipper. And a um, there wasn't Velcro back then. But each one was uh, you could actually open up and I wanted to crawl inside. So the weird sort of post note to that story, the postscript, is that I did look for the pocketbook online. I did turn to Dr. Google and sort of say, like, I want to see this wonderful, treasured, bespoke object that I loved so much as a child, and I could never find it. And finally, um, someone hearing me talk about it at a reading last year, I think in Cambridge, said, I I know that book, I had that book, and I'm going to send you a picture from my house. And much to my chagrin, when the picture arrived, I did recognize it. Um, But it was something like the Fisher-Price pocketbook for girls, and there was a boy version. So it was this horrible... (sighs) branded, like gendered commercial thing in reality. And my memory had just completely changed it into this, you know, beautiful hand-sewn thing made by like gnomes in a magical forest somewhere. It wasn't that. Wouldn't it be wonderful if all of our memories could be like that? Just to recreate a situation to make it the most perfect possible thing. Well, you know, when I was working on the book, I very purposefully didn't Google anything. I didn't Google anything. The only thing I looked for were I did buy in certain cases where I no longer had the original copy of the books that I was writing about. I wanted to find the actual edition because part of what is so important to me about books is their physical aspect and the, you know, the cover and the smell of the glue and the pages and the stock and all of that. And so I needed to find those particular editions where I didn't have them. But I didn't Google other things. Like I, I you know, I write about in the book how I had lived in Thailand in 1993-94. And I had not been back to Thailand. I went very briefly in 97. And just in that interval of three years, the town had gone from three 7-Elevens to, I think, 15. And after that, I thought, I don't want to know what's going to happen here development-wise, even though I know some of it is positive, et cetera. But I wanted to preserve in my head the image of how it was. So even when my memory failed me and I might not have remembered like the name of this particular restaurant or that in writing my book, I didn't want to Google it because I thought those new images are going to kind of mess with my memory of how things were. You grew up with seven brothers and have said that it, that any time you showed female traits, you were mocked. Where were you in the birth order of your siblings? So with my – I had two what we would call real brothers, um, and I was a middle child. And then I had five stepbrothers from two different marriages, and so they were sort of, um, you know, stuck on either side. So I was a middle child in all respects. And again, people would say, you know, when they heard that I was – the only girl, that that must have been something special and I was, you know, must have been spoiled and cared for and protected. And really, it was nothing of the sort. You know, my brothers would, um, yes, mock any aspect of femininity. I grew up really believing that um, in order to sort of be respected and liked, you couldn't be feminine at all. Uh, and that uh, if I, you know, did anything kind of out of line, I could sort of at any moment be grabbed and, you know, thrown to the ground and the favored method of torture was to pin someone down me, pin me down and uh, drool over me. <gasps> oh, the huge goobers. gob of saliva. Oh. I just let it like hang over me no. knowing that it was going to at any moment follow oh my, my face. God, oh my God. Yeah, it was awesome. It was really, it was a sweet childhood. Oh my goodness. <laughs> well, your grandfather was a meat market owner. Your father was a construction contractor. And your mom is an author, copywriter, and was the editor of Retail Ad World. Was she your biggest influence growing up? 
Well, yeah. So I descended from royalty, as you can tell. Um, but no, my, the thing about my mom is that you know she was an advertising copywriter for most of her career. She was a Peggy. She entered into New York advertising that same year uh, that Mad Men began. I think it was 1962. And um, she... What she did was, to me, kind of miraculous in that she would get um, a client, let's say Chiquita Banana, and she would come home and have to write these taglines and, you know, brainstorm 20 of them in quick succession. And she was very good at it. So it'd be like, it's banana appeal and things like that, these punny kind of things. I thought that was incredibly fun. But mostly she worked very hard. And I grew up in an environment where uh, it was, you know, you, you never would consider not working as a, as a girl or as a woman. Well, you've written that as a kid, you bombed at art, ice skating, soccer, and ballet, but you excelled at reading and that this was at a time you've described as one where kids were supposed to be outside playing. And in uh, My Life with Bob, you state at school, I walked around in a state of perpetual embarrassment. Certain others could sniff out something different about me. Did you feel like a misfit? I was really shy. I was incredibly, incredibly shy. And I remember, you know, I would, in moments of deep shyness, just go and sort of hide in the in the closet. And the worst fear was, you know, to have someone sort of discover you in there, wallowing in your own shyness. But I remember there was a moment I moved to a new town uh, when I was in second grade. And I remember standing outside at recess one day by myself. And it's one of those memories, you know, again, that that in my memory, it's like everyone is laughing and having tons of fun around me. But then there's like this sort of circle of that that in my immediate vicinity, like a um, uh, this periphery around me that's like a do not enter zone where it's like people were told almost, you know, like, do not go into the circle where that girl is. But I remember someone broke through the barrier and came up to me and said, the flood is over and ran away. And it was years later that I understood what that meant, which is that I was wearing, you know, hand-me-downs for my brothers and uh, and they were too short. And so what you would say to someone is the flood's over. Well, I didn't get that memo because I wasn't part of like the mocking crowd. I was part of the mocked crowd. Yeah. So yeah. I, but it was, you know, it's uh, there's something so especially painful about being made fun of for something that you don't even know what it is that you're being made fun of. So that just it's like this double thing because you're you realize that you've been shamed and you don't actually know what you did wrong. Yeah, I remember a girl, a, a girl coming up to me in junior high school and I was wearing a pink skirt that I'd made. My mother was a seamstress, so she taught me how to so when I was very young. And so I made this pink skirt and I wore a green blouse with it. And at one point, Anella Williams came up to me and said, you know, you should be wearing a slip with that skirt. And I didn't even know what she was talking about. But I realized it was because the green blouse was coming through the pink skirt and everybody could see it. And I was ashamed and horrified. You know, it's funny. And like like things like clothes, like these signifiers that you don't know when you're little. I remember later on in the I, – I, Things got better, and then they got worse. They got the worst in the fifth grade when these two girls, Carla and Marianne, decided that they would set the entire grade against me. And <gasps> yeah, it was terrible. Why? Now, well, b- there was a good reason. I had dated Marianne's fifth grade boyfriend in fourth grade. And by dated, I want to say, like, we exchanged some notes in locker, um, in each other's lockers, and, like, maybe went to ice cream once. But this was considered, you know, like a serious relationship at that age. And I had had the audacity to date him in fourth grade, and Marianne was dating him in fifth grade. So they set the entire grade against me. And it 
lasted the entire year. It was terrible. And on the very last day of school, Marianne came up to me and said, um, I'm very sorry. I would like to be friends now. And sixth grade, we were in the same class and we got these shirts that said best friends forever on the front, matching shirts, you know, Pam on one sleeve and Marianne on the other. And, you know, that was the end of that. And you forgave her and became best friends? Yeah. Wasn't that... That's, uh, a, that's very open-hearted of you. <laughs> or, or, or totally cowardly. One <laughs> or the other. I, I think I want to stick with the open heart. Um, you've written that families seemed better inside books and cited books like All of a Kind Family and Little Women as examples. And I actually did the same thing. I wish that I could be Nancy Drew because of how close she was with her father. They seemed to have such a good relationship, and I was terrified of mine. Um, were you a Nancy Drew fan? I was. I was a Nancy Drew fan. Um, you know, of course, Bess and George, her best friends, and she always had her boyfriend who was, you know, ever helpful. Um, and with the Nancy Drew books, I was very particular. That was actually, those were the books that I really first became aware of the book as an object and very um, uh, particular about the kind of book that I wanted and the kind that I wanted with those. And Nancy Drew fan listeners will know what I'm talking about here. There were the very old ones, which had a plain dark navy blue cloth bound cover, undecorated. Those were no good. Then there were the modern sort of reinterpretations, which had a kind of high gloss cover. Um, those also were no good. The kind you needed, I needed, but everyone really should have had were these yellow yeah, bound thank God. Ones, thank God. Right? I thought we were going to have a fight right here on the podcast. No, thank it's God a, I think, you said that. I feel that. like it's universally accepted at this point. But so they had these great paintings on the cover and these old-timey illustrations inside, and they smelled fantastic. And uh, and so I had to have those. And um, the only way to get those at that time was to buy them used. So there was this used bookstore in town, and I would save up my money and go up there and, you know, ask if they had any used Nancy Drews to see if they had the right ones. I still have mine, the ones that I had when I was a kid. I still have mine, too. I treasure them. I treasure them. So growing up, you were quite industrial. You babysat. You worked at a bakery. You glued catalogs together at a South American import warehouse. You folded sweaters at a store. And you worked at a restaurant where you also quit eating red meat after venturing into that restaurant's meat locker. Um, then when you got your driver's license, you attained your dream job, a position at B. Dalton Bookstore in a mall. Was that when you knew for sure that you wanted a life in books? You know, I always just – books were always just a part of my life. You know, I never even considered, like, that it was a choice to want a, jo a life in books. Um, it was just I wanted to be as close to and as immersed in them as I could. I had tried early on to get a job at my local public library and, um, you know, asked repeatedly. And they, they never had jobs for me. I think that, like, they had, like, a note in their, you know, employee manual that was, like, the girl who's here every day, like, do not engage, do not employ, <laughs> you know. And I told them they didn't have to pay me, but they wanted nothing to do with me. So B. Dalton was fantastic. And it didn't pay very well either. I think it was minimum wage at the time. And they gave you it was either a five percent or a ten percent discount on books as employees. Nowadays, as I understand it from people who work in bookstores, employers are generally more generous. But at that time, it was very stingy. So I could be near them, I could smell them, I could reshelve them, I could know about them, I could, you know, kind of assess what I thought the literary world was. Um, but. I couldn't necessarily buy them. So a lot of this, you know, intensive labor was I just I felt the need to be 
independent, uh, you know, financially independent from a very young age. Like it was my way of being like, I am out of this narrative and I'm going to, you know, propel myself somewhere else. And so, um, you know, I, I, but I loved working at B. Dalton. I loved being surrounded uh, by those books. I think what I liked most is that I felt like, you know, books were a way, a signifier sort of interpretation of the larger world. And I could tell by what books were on the shelves that like gave me a read on the rest of the world. At the time, you've written about how Andy Warhol was your literary guide. Yes. And you obsessively read anything about or endorsed by him. And in fact, you once spotted him browsing the hip Fiorucci store in New York City. And I understand you shadowed him for 45 minutes, prolonging what you deemed the moment art became real. And what did he buy? Did, did he didn't you... buy anything. So, I, you know, and, and when I've met like some people who were Andy adjacent or knew him and I sort of told this story, they're like, yeah, that sounds right. Like he just picked up everything and sort of oohed and odd over it. And he was with someone and kind of, you know, talked about it and then he would put it back down. I think that my best friend Eric and I were probably the only two people on the planet who appointment watched this very short-lived Andy Warhol TV show on MTV called Andy Warhol's 15 Minutes. And they had authors on there, like they had Tam Janowitz and they had, um, uh, you know, sort of that kind of 80s. Cool, T. McInerney. Yeah, 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 that whole sort of uh, hip 80s scene of writers. And Andy would blur books. Um, and uh, so I just thought he was, you know, the, the go-to person. I mean, it's so funny the way you, you misinterpret the larger world when you're young, but that's what I that's that's what I thought. He was like art and literature and New York City. I understand you were also a dancer in a Nile uh, Rogers video. Tell oh us God. about that. Is that in my book? Oh, I'm not. I I, I have all sorts of you ways of all finding kinds things of sources. <laughs> so yes, I was an extra in a Nile Rogers video. Again, that was like my you know moment of glory and fame. Um, I had a friend who at the time um, had dated a number of uh, of musicians, and so there was a period where I kind of got to interact a little bit with them. And and then my best friend's uh, uncle was the lead singer of the band Kiss. So I wow, used to, yeah, wow. Oh, you say that so nonchalantly. I know. It's well, you know, it deal. was it was like it was just sort of what there. You know, it was just the situation at the time. I mean, he would come, you know, to school plays when she started them, and it would just be like, oh, there's Paul Stanley. But to me, you know, he was Stan Stanley. Um, That's so cool. Yeah. So so there were like these little you know uh, adjacencies to fame. Um, but uh, so I, that's how I indirectly through this this friend who knew Niall um, at the time it was you know in the eighties and he was producing he had just produced Love Shack, um, the B fifty twos album and he was producing an unknown artist at the time Terry Gonzalez and I can't remember how I ended up getting to do it but I oh that was my question was which one because I was watching I was trying to find you to see which one it was oh and I yeah find you know that. there ended up being a kind of legal battle I think over that album and I'm I, I know it was released I mean I have a physical copy of, of the vinyl record and uh, and the video was aired a number of times but uh, there's something happened um, yeah but it, it was it was fun I, I got to you know I had my big scene with Erica saying Nile as I went walked into a party Wow. Yes. Okay. And then I'm we got, like, still keep looking. <laughs> <laughs> I wore a very terrible outfit with like a it was like a little teeny top and a long tight skirt and like a fully exposed midriff. You know, sounds very like 80s. the Madonna period. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Neon green, pink, that kind of thing. It was turquoise. It was oh, turquoise. Okay. Yes. Okay. My hair was big. <laughs> 
Now, you studied history at Brown University. Why history? Well, you know, I thought I was going to be a, an English major, um, but I ended up not taking any writing classes at all. I took literature classes, um, and I'd... I just had always wanted to – I was always interested in history. I think I was like the only probably like sophomore, you know, in high school girl in my town who joined the history book club. You remember this? Like it was like a Columbia house but like the, the book a month club where you would get 11 books, you know, for a penny in your first installment. And I still have those books like they're – I did that with records. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. See, that's the – kind of dorky girl I was. So, um, but I found the, the, the writing scene at Brown very intimidating. Um, and also all the good writing classes there, there were so many aspiring writers, uh, were hard to get into when they were often at eight or nine o'clock in the morning. And at that period of my life, I'd made it sort of a general policy not to take a class that started before 10 a.m. Uh, but I just, got really excited about history. And I had a brief moment where I thought I wanted to get a doctorate in history. And I, I uh, ended up talking to my advisor about that. And he uh, he said, you know, you look like the kind of girl who wants to live in New York. And I said, well, you know, sort of disappointed that he could read me so easily. And he said, like, let me tell you this. If you go and you get a doctorate in history, and if you are lucky enough to actually get a job, here's what's going to happen. You're going to end up being tens of thousands of dollars in debt, and you are going to end up not at Brown University and not at NYU and not at Columbia because there are no jobs in history. You are going to end up – and also the area of history I was interested in was a kind of um, well-trod area. I was really interested in the World War periods and the, in, in, in the interwar years, and I wasn't interested in anything – especially sexy. I didn't look at it from a post-structuralist view or um, a Marxist uh, perspective. And so he said, you, you're going to end up at like the University of Iowa and like not even the main campus. You're going to end up in like some teeny little town in the middle of nowhere. And if that's okay with you and that's the path you want to pursue, go for it. Sounds so encouraging. That. Yeah, that was super <laughs> encouraging. But, you know, friends of mine, I mean, I do have friends who ended up, you know, getting their PhDs and getting positions. But a lot of people I've told that story to said, you know what, he really did you like a kindness there. And, you know, it didn't end up all that bad. So I'm happy he discouraged me. That's my retirement plan as a PhD in history. In your senior year of college, you walked out midway through a job interview with Quaker Oats. Tell us that story. Yeah. So, you know, when you have those outer body experiences where, you know, you're on the outside and you see yourself, I was looking at myself from the ceiling. And what I was saying in this interview was um, I really like Captain Crunch cereal, but I only like it with the crunch berries because you kind of need that, that tartness to offset like the overwhelming sweetness of the kind of the foundation cereal. And, um, and I realized, you know, I was answering a question that the interviewer was asking me, and what he was asking me was, why do you want to work at Quaker Oats? And so he, you know, interrupted me and he said, many of us here at Quaker Oats enjoy, you know, our Captain Crunch line of cereal. Um, but really, why do you want to work at Quaker Oats? And it was at that moment I realized, like, I don't want to work at Quaker Oats. Oh, my God. Like, is this why I've been studying for four years, why I've read all these books, why I tried so hard in high school, while I, you know, why I, uh, you know, is, is this sort of the, the path that I'm meant to follow? 
And uh, it was not. So I, I said, you know what? You're, you're right. I, I don't want to work at Quaker Oats. And I'm sorry to have wasted your time. And I left. That's an incredibly brave thing to have done. Well, brave or chicken. <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, I think it would have been really easy to just go through the interview and then just say, never again. But to actually take a stand for yourself in that moment just feels so poetic, epic. I, I, I'm a really bad liar is, is part of it. And I realized once I realized that I didn't want to work there, I felt like I couldn't get through the rest of that interview in a way that I just couldn't do it. I'm, I just can't. Uh, I just would have interrupted myself. You know, um, I couldn't pretend that I really wanted to work there. And I kind of felt like like that's why I left my body at that moment, because I was having trouble articulating something that felt true. It is true that I only like Captain Crunch with Crunch Berries. If that remains true. But don't um, you have to have a lot of milk and let it soak for a bit so it doesn't like scrape the roof of your mouth? It is scrapey. No, I don't like, I mean, I have cereals, not to get too detailed here, but I do have like Raisin Bran, you have to wait till it's mush. But no, I like it kind of on the crunchy side, but it does need those crunch berries. So that much was true. I felt sincere. And then I realized, you know, when he asked that follow-up question, I really couldn't answer it in a truthful way. What did you think at that point you wanted to do with the rest of your life? So I had, you know, I had gone into college thinking, I knew it at heart I wanted to be a writer, but that you couldn't articulate because that was just too big and, you know, too grandiose. Like to say I'm, I am a writer, um, it always felt incredible, like almost embarrassing. It's worse in French, you know, where you have to say like, je suis écrivain. Um, and it's like there's no article even to make it. It's just like saying like, I am a poet or I am a philosopher. It seemed too grand. And I couldn't do that. So I thought I'll be book adjacent. And I thought I would work in either advertising like my mother, kind of coming up with fun things to write. Um, or I would work in publishing. And so I would be in the arena, and but not, uh, you know, on stage. So I... When I was graduating, I was still looking at those two things, and I thought, wait a minute, how is it that in these four years in which I've supposedly been exposed to, like, the entire world of knowledge, and I've traveled all throughout Europe, that I'm coming back um, and studied abroad to these same two answers that I had going in. So I had been influenced by this book that I'd been flirting with um, that was I hadn't bought it yet because it was expensive, but it was at the College Hill Bookstore in Providence called A Journey of One's Own, Uncommon uh, Thoughts for the Independent Woman Traveler by a woman named Thalia Zapatos that was published in 1991. And it was a travel book about this woman who had just done all these brave, really unconventional travel adventures. She had, you know, ridden camels and donkeys and, you know, swam across channels and just done these amazing things that I never would do and I didn't want to do. And in fact, I thought I couldn't do and I would hate doing them. But I kept being drawn back to this book and wanting to read about it because it felt so other. And I was just, it was like, I thought I had this realization that maybe these things that I think that I don't want to do or can't do or shouldn't do are options that I'm sort of closing off at a very young age um, as possibilities for myself and that if I'm wanting to leave college four years later doing the same, you know, wanting to do the same thing I 
wanted to do going in, maybe I've been looking at a really small set of options. And maybe I haven't, like, maybe I've been looking at A through D, and I haven't explored what E through Z is. And maybe I should try something in that E to Z. So I, when I walked out of that interview with uh, Quaker Oats, I went directly to the bookstore and I bought that book. And then shortly thereafter, I decided that I should do something that Thalia Zapatos would do, um, and that I should do something that essentially challenged every assumption that I've made up in my life up until that point. And down to the nitty gritty, I wanted to do something where every morning I couldn't go about my day following and sort of the same plan or ticking off the, you know, read the paper, um, had my coffee, went to the gym. I wanted to be able to do none of that. And then on a kind of larger scale, I wanted to go somewhere where I didn't speak the language, where I didn't have a job or friends or contacts, or somewhere where I'd be an ethnic minority and a religious minority and, you know, just really be sort of set out to see so that I would have to explore the things that I thought I couldn't do. So I ended up buying a one-way ticket to uh, northern Thailand and uh, moved there after college. So you taught English, French, and history at schools part-time, and I believe you also trained in a Thai massage school. Yes. <laughs> so yes. Do you I give can. a good Thai massage? I do give a th- good Thai massage. You know, the funny thing about a Thai massage, and of course it's now it's available here in the States, but they do a kind of watered-down version. The kind of version that I did and the kind that I got every week when I lived there for was a three-and-a-half-hour massage. It cost $8. So just oh a three-and-a-half-hour massage, $8. And one might think, well, that's an awfully long time to lie there being massaged. Like, wouldn't you get bored? And the answer is no. I just, like, I felt like that was a meditative state for me. I would get massaged for three-and-a-half hours. I had a motorcycle there. I would, like, get on the motorcycle. I almost felt like it was, like, a, you know, jeopardizing my life and the lives of others to, to then drive the 45 minutes back to this fruit orchard where I lived um, because of my body was just jelly. So, I yeah, I went to massage school. It was – it's 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 hard. Um but it's it's actually physically hard. Some people say Thai massage is like giving yoga to someone else. So it's a full body thing where you're walking and pulling and standing on someone and, you know, uh, but it feels awfully good when it's being done to you. Why did you leave? Thailand? or the- <laughs> <laughs> You know, I left Thailand. Um, I left Thailand because the, I was teaching at a school. And in order to stay at that school, I had to make a two-year commitment, and I didn't want to commit that much because part of what moving abroad was for me was to not plan. It was to throw that plan away and to challenge myself with kind of not knowing what was next. So I was fine with having a job and being committed to doing it as well as I could. But the idea of having like a contract and knowing that I'd be there for a set duration, I didn't find appealing. And then I went on a trip to China for six weeks on my own. And I set out these kind of uh, really strict parameters for that trip, some of it of necessity, like I was on a budget of $15 a day, which even at that time was not a lot of money so that I was sometimes sleeping on like concrete slabs. And um, and it was a tough trip. I, I was traveling mostly in um, Xinjiang province in the far west, sort of between Kashgar and, and Xi'an and following that length of the Silk Road. And no one there, like let alone speak Mandarin. They often spoke uh, Uyghur um, or, you know, another dialect that was more Arabic in its origin or sort of a Ural-Altaic language and written in an Arabic script. 
So they didn't speak the language. They didn't even know out there that there was a, a form of currency called FEC, um, foreign, I think, a foreign exchange currency that foreigners used to have to use in China, but they had gotten rid of it and they were allowing foreigners to use the yuan. They weren't told that in the distant provinces, so I often couldn't even buy things. Like they would not accept my money. Wow! And you yeah. had to buy your father a spittoon, didn't you, on that trip? Yeah, he gave he cut a deal with me. Um, he was obsessed with China and with the Last Emperor, that movie in particular, and um, opium wars and all that. And he said, "I'll give you a thousand dollars to help uh, finance your trip to China, but you have to bring me back a spittoon." And so I said, fine. And I didn't know what a spittoon was. So I just like I had an image of it. I don't know. I thought it was like a long tube that you spat through. I, where did I got this idea? I don't know. But it's really so, big, right? No, no, a spittoon is not that at all. A spittoon is a, like a jug, like a thing that you oh. spit into. But I thought it was like a thing. Like I was picturing, you know, like when little kids in school would like take like a wad of spat on, you know, paper and put it on a straw right. and go pfft, you know, and spit it oh, across. Oh, a spitball, yeah. Spitball. I was, I was imagining one like, of those things where you, like, do a, like, spit a spear out at an animal. Yeah, well, so, <laughs> see, who knows what a spittoon is? You wouldn't know if you weren't. Yeah, well, I, so, anyway, I, every time I saw, like, a long object, you know, like a sword-like thing or a flute or whatever, I'd say, like, is this a spittoon? And I, everyone just shook their head at me. Like, so, I didn't come back with a spittoon. Oh. I didn't realize what it was. There was no Google then. I was traveling, you know, in those pre-internet days. It was a yeah. very different kind of thing. You'd be completely unplugged. No Google Map. No. I mean, I, I didn't have a phone, obviously. I didn't have a phone card. There was no such thing. So I was six weeks, you know, without sort of almost saying a word to anyone. Wow. You moved back to New York. Yes. Uh, and started working in marketing before getting a job at Scholastic and then Time, Inc., uh, you were thrilled and figured you'd be working on topics such as World War II, but instead found yourself working on the Sports Illustrated swimsuit calendar. Yeah. I ended up – so I had worked in sort of a job that was half marketing and half editorial at um, Scholastic, and I loved working there. I loved being in that in that world of children's books, and I'd taken that job because uh, it was an educational children's publisher, and, um, and that was – pre-Harry Potter. That was sort of the Goosebumps uh, Babysitter's Club era of, of Scholastic. I went to Time, Inc. thinking I wanted to get a kind of job in the grown-up world, and I was part of a division that would create books based on the magazines at Time, Inc. So I imagined putting together these beautiful sort of photographic histories of World War II from Life magazine. Um, and instead, I was put on the, the SI team um, and was selling calendars. But not just that, um, they were sold at that time. It was sort of the, the law. This is now illegal, but through sweepstakes. So it was the kind of thing where you were selling people this sort of horrible calendar um, and selling it to them uh, when they didn't even want it. What They thought they were only buying it because they thought they had won like 50 billion dollars um, in a sweepstakes. So it was not the most rewarding job. You started freelancing for publications such as The Economist. It was at this time that you've stated that you lost reading. Um, you then came back to it via the first book you were ever assigned to review. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I had been writing a column for The Economist on global arts trends, and I had started writing some pieces on um, on film and on theater and uh, sort of reported a little bit and also reviews. But I'd never written a book review, and uh, I had wanted to, but it, it felt, you know, again, like a sort of a higher step. Um, but I got assigned uh, a book 
to review um, for for The Economist. And it's funny because after I wrote that first book review, I handed it into my editor. And uh, up until that point, I'd never gotten anything but very positive feedback. And I handed it in and he said, oh, dear, let me show you how to write a book review. Um, so, and now he actually writes book reviews for me. So it's all ended very nicely. He did show me how to write a book review. <laughs> Around that time, you took a class at the New School on writing personal essays. And you were still working in marketing. And in many ways, that class led to your first book, The Starter Marriage, in 2002. How did that come about? So what happened was, um, I, after my marriage ended, I felt like that's the the, what had happened was swirling around in my head, and um, you get to a point where you think, okay, my friends have sort of heard this 20,000 times, um, and it's not helping me to talk to them. It's not getting it out of my head. I thought what I need to do is actually just write it out of my head, and um, but I didn't want to publish anything. I wanted it just to be for me. So I took a class at night. I thought I would know, you know, I knew I wouldn't wouldn't know anyone in this class. Um, and it was taught by Lucy Greeley, and per- it was about personal essay writing. And I just wrote about what had happened for me, and I didn't read it aloud in class or anything like that. Um, but it was to get it out of my system. When I ended up writing uh, my first book, The Starter Marriage and the Future of Matrimony, I very deliberately set out to write a book that was not about me. And in fact, I was only um, used the first person in the first two paragraphs. I think the first line was, before I got uh, divorced, I got married forever. I described the wedding very briefly and generally, but I didn't want to be in that book. I wanted it to be a reported book about um, what I discovered was not an experience, uh, you know, special to me, but was something a lot of people my age were going through at that time, these kind of marriages that only lasted for a short period, usually five years or less, and didn't have kids, and kind of what is that significance of that um, sort of early mistake or experience, you know, experience, um, uh, whether you regret it or not. So what I did was I went out and I interviewed other people. And I found that um, that writing my story, dealing with my story in that way ended up actually being the most helpful thing of all, because it got me out of my own head. And writing my own story on the page didn't get work. Talking to friends about it didn't work. What actually worked was stopping thinking about myself so much and instead interviewing other people who had gone through a similar experience and hearing about their stories. And I started reporting that book um, really only a few months after I split up with my then uh, husband. And so that ended up becoming the start of marriage and the future of matrimony. That was a really helpful book to me as well. I had a starter marriage. Ah, so it was us. Yes, absolutely. You married your current husband aboard a yacht called The Princess. And in 2004, the New York Times piece on your wedding noted that on your first date with him, you were reluctant to tell him your full name and what your book had, that you had written was about. What, what was it like when he found out what the first book was about? Oh, you know, he was fine. Otherwise, I wouldn't have married him. Please. Yes, yes, it's um, true. You know, but it's funny hearing that. I mean, I think that was for my wedding announcement in the Times. We ended up getting married on a boat, um, one of those boats that goes around Manhattan really by accident because we were in the process of closing on a house in Harlem. And we had gotten bought a townhouse. And um, as often happens when you buy real estate, it doesn't exactly go by the time, uh, you know, the calendar that you, that you set out. And so we had set the wedding date and sent out the invitations and then realized, oh, my God, we haven't even, like, closed the deal yet. Like, we hadn't even, like, finalized the contract. So <laughs> we are – my in-laws had prepared 
planned a rehearsal dinner on this boat, and they thought it would be really nice for all the people from out of town to be able to, you know, see Manhattan while we had the rehearsal dinner. And we couldn't think of any other option at that late point. So we said, can we just steal your rehearsal dinner idea and, like, you can find something else? And they uh, very kindly complied. So we stole the we stole the rehearsal dinner for our wedding. After your first child was born, you got an invitation to write a review for the New York Times book review. It was on The Lady and the Panda. You did the review. After your second child was born, you got another invitation and did another. Later, a friend asked if you knew anyone who would be interested in being the children's book editor of the New York Times and on vacation, you had an epiphany. Can you tell us what that was about? Yeah. So I had been um, working from home for nine years. I had three children uh, during that period. I'd written three books. I was really very happy. I could work in my pajamas all day. I never wanted to work in an office again. And I had been writing for the book reviews, you know, doing freelance assignments for them for a number of years. And was friendly with the then editor, Sam Tannenhaus. And um, he asked me for advice on who to be the next children's book editor. And it's a really, first of all, fantastic job. I mean, uh, that's like the only job that I think could possibly compete for me with the one that I have now. Um, because it's such an interesting it, – it's actually a very specific kind of role. You need to be a journalist and you need to be an editor and you need to be a critic, but you need to understand children. You need to have an understanding a little bit of education and you really also need to have an appreciation of art because there's so much illustration in books and children's books. And so that's like a, a set of qualifications that's difficult to find and I tried to suggest some people to him and I didn't have any expertise really in children's books other than having had worked at Scholastic and at that point having kids and loving those books myself. Um, so I named all these people, but none of them were quite the right fit. He interviewed various people and I was out in LA. I was on my way to a bookstore that was also an art gallery um, called Every Picture Tells a Story that had um, original illustrations as well as picture books. And I would always go out there when I was in LA um, to visit our uh, my in-laws. And uh, I wanted to go. I was in the car with my husband. I was trying to figure out with our schedule, like, how could I go without the kids? Because the kids would just distract me because they would want me to read books to them and, like, show them. And I really wanted to, like, have time by myself looking through all their amazing, you know, this just resource of illustrations and possibly buy something. And I then just realized, you know, if I care this much about children's books and children's illustration, like, maybe I should consider being the children's books editor myself. And sort of before I could change my mind, I sent off one of those impulsive emails where I said, you know, maybe um, if you could make this thing part-time, I would consider applying. Uh, and then, you know, three weeks later, I was working at the New York Times. Um, so it was it was great. It was very accidental. I After I took the job, I thought, oh, no, what have I done? Because it it meant I had to buy clothing and, you know. <laughs> no more pajamas. <laughs> no more working in my pajamas. Um, but it's like I went from, you know, one really great job uh, to another great job. And it was just, you know, a change of, of environment. And obviously, uh, I've been thrilled being there since then. After spending a couple of years in that role, you became the editor of the New York Times book review proper. Um, and you've really breathed new life into the section. It's it's a very, very lively, spirited section now. You have a podcast as well. You also wield a tremendous amount of power over the literary world. Was it daunting at first? You know, it wasn't. It wasn't actually daunting um, because, I mean, a couple of things 
I think were very useful in terms of inuring me to um, some of the vagaries of being in a position where, you know, at any given moment, sort of 90% of the writers out there are really angry at you or disappointed in you or resentful, which is that I had written books. I had had my books reviewed. My books had not all been positive reviews. I'd been through that. I'd understood, you know, the sort of what's personal and what's not personal. And I'd also seen Sam Tannenhaus, who was a really great mentor to me in many ways, go, you know, in that role and then out that role. And I realized that whoever is sitting in that chair, it's not about you. It's about that position of power. And so you can't personalize it. And, you know, it's interesting when you are a freelancer, you think, you know, you're, you're, you're looking at the world through your own sort of selfish lens and you think, well, I have all these friends who are editors, you know, why don't they just give me these assignments? You're not looking at it from their perspective, which is like they're trying to find the exact right person for this. Um, and, uh, and they have to make their editorial decisions independent of friendship and any kind of, you know, interest that they might have. You know that you have a responsibility, but you also have this mission, which is ultimately not to author and not to publishers, although, of course, we want to support what they do, but to our readers. And so you're constantly thinking about, like, what can we best do to serve our readers and to meet our readers' needs and to, you know, open them up to new literary works, but also to provide assessments of, of the important books that are out there. And part of that is negative reviews, and part of that is, you know, not reviewing everything. It's a job of curation. And so to do that job well, you kind of have to take yourself out of it a little bit. I would say the one way in which my own personal experience as a writer has really helped in that role is that I know how much work it is to write a book and I know how much heart you can put into it and how terrible it feels if it's a negative review. So I do try to be respectful of the amount of work that it requires on the part of the authors and everyone in the editorial process who works to support that author's work. And I think, you know, one of the reasons why we have so much responsibility at the Times, which is both fortunate and unfortunate, is that so much of the um, media, in particular newspapers, have cut back on their book review coverage. And so, you know, there are fewer kind of players in the world. And, and so what you do might end up feeling much weightier in a way than it might have 30 years ago when, you know, you had a book that would come out, you'd get 15, 30 reviews around the country. That's no longer the case. You know? I believe the Times is the only freestanding um, daily paper. The only It's the last daily paper with a freestanding book section. It is, yeah. The Washington Post folded Book World into Outlook in 2008. And before that, the San Francisco Chronicle uh, folded uh, its sort of freestanding book review section in 2005. I mean, both papers still do include books coverage, but you just don't have, you know, I could see it with my own books. My first book came out in 2002, and I would get lots of local papers around the country had a staff book critic. Um, now, you know, very few of them do. And so I feel lucky to be somewhere like the Times where we have three full-time staff critics, where we have a full-time uh, staff dedicated to, uh, you know, running the book review as well as uh, writing news and features and a publishing reporter. We're the only uh, paper or magazine in the country to have um, a news magazine, at least to have a full-time children's books editor, which I obviously think is very important because those are the books that turn every adult, you know, make every adult who is a reader, you know, started with those books. Um, yeah, it is a lot of responsibility, but I think it's it's one that I feel good about, you know, carrying out. What goes into the makings of good criticism? 
so many things. It's funny. It's it's easier to talk about what a bad book review is than a good book review. But I think, you know, at heart, a good book review is a good piece of writing, first of all. Um, it should inform and entertain. It should be not just a guide to, you know, should I read this or should I not? You know, that is like – if this is not a a good book review to me is not one that has a thumbs up or thumbs down or a star system or anything like that, but one that is an engaging piece of writing in and of itself. And I think to get that, you need a critic who can engage with the work on a you know emotional level or an intellectual level that somehow you are getting a sense of this reader took this book seriously and thought about it. Um, in a way that, uh, you know, assessed it for what it is. Um, and again, that, 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 that review then is worth reading in and of itself. How do you deal with criticism of the criticism of your section's criticism? Wow, meta question there. <laughs> um, you know, look, it should it should all there should be a discussion and a debate. I mean, this is not book criticism is an interesting area. It's all art criticism, in a way, is that it's not a news report in a you know who, what, when, where, why. Although you should have that in your book review somewhere, um, and it's not an opinion piece. It's not an op-ed. Um, there, you come to it not objectively. You can't come to anything objectively as a in a book review because every reader has their own you know, interpretation of a book. It's often very different, frankly, from the writer's intent. It's good when a book review stirs debate. What's not good is, look, you can disagree with the book reviewer, with a critic, but you shouldn't have to distrust that mm. critic. So for that reason, we are vigilant about fact-checking, about, uh, you know, guarding against conflicts of interest. You can't review someone in the book review whom you've already reviewed in the book review. So, Writers like who are very prolific, like Stephen King or Joyce Carol Oates, are a challenge because no one who has ever reviewed those authors can, for the book review, can review them again. It's a little bit different if you're a daily critic. Again, you're not getting an independent assessment because that doesn't exist, but you're getting a fair assessment. I want to talk a bit more about your own literary portfolio. Uh, Pornified, the book you released in 2005, was a thoughtful and important look at the industry and its cultural impact. What led you to wanting to explore this particular subject? It's funny because everyone wants to hear like some dark and, you know, stormy, I guess that's a funny word to use these days, but some, you know, dark personal tale that I had when, in fact, I really approached this uh, book as a journalist. I had written about the subject for Time magazine, where I was a contributor at the time. We were doing a sex issue, and it was one of those things where I kind of came a little bit late on board, and many topics were taken, and I thought about, well... There's this new kind of phenomenon, this is 2003, of the internet uh, with pornography and that I think that it's sort of changing the way in which people consume pornography. So it wasn't really about the industry so much as it was about the consumer and about how having a, you know, ubiquitous, easily accessible, often free exposure to pornography at any moment of the day, including, you know, in the office, um, and the kinds of pornography out there, that radical shift that the internet caused, sort of how that was affecting the people who used it, whether they were users themselves or people who were in a relationship with someone who was consuming a lot of pornography or the child of someone who was a frequent pornography user or maybe just an occasional pornography user or kids who saw it themselves at a young age and how that affected people. And I did that story for time. But 
it being a story for time, I think it was, you know, somewhere between 1,200 and 1,800 words. And there was a lot I couldn't get into that amount of space, but there was also a lot of content that wasn't really well suited for Time magazine. And I felt like to write honestly and um, and really to write about it, it was, it was very critical that you say it you know, you call it for what it is. To say something like, well, sexually explicit images really didn't convey something like women being, um, you know, having their necks physically wrenched back while being choked with semen and crying during the experience and yeah. having this done in a way that was supposed to be intentionally sexually arousing. So you can't write that in Time magazine. And I felt like you couldn't therefore convey the essence of what was going on. How do you feel now about the range of pornography there is, the preponderance of porn culture, and the effect that it's having on the way that we have sex? Well, I think it's what's interesting right now is that um, that there isn't as critical an examination of it at the same time that you have a real thorough reexamination of other sexual relationships with regard to power and power imbalance because of the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. um, and you say, well, you know, it's not fair for there to be this power imbalance and this objectification and this kind of harassment in the workplace, um, but then somehow it's okay in this other arena, which, by the way, also often involves workplaces. Um, so I think that that right now what, what sort of hasn't quite happened is, is a reconciliation of those kinds of uh, um, contradictions. In 1988, while you were in high school, in lieu of keeping a traditional diary, you started what you called a book of books. And in it, you recorded every book you read. And you still keep this up today. You've called your book of books Bob, for short. You documented this first in a New York Times essay in 2012, writing that if your house burst into flames, it would be the one thing you sought to save. You captured your first book in Bob, Franz Kafka's The Trial, while on a summer cultural immersion program in rural France at 17 years old. Did you have a sense that this was something you'd be doing for the rest of your life? <laughs> no. You know, I started that off. Um, I tried to keep other diaries, and they were really kind of miserable experiences, nothing that anyone would want to ever look back on. The, you know, the incidents that I wrote about were really trivial, and and uh, and the prose wasn't good. So I thought, let me write about what I really would like to keep a record of, and and which I think reflects my life in many ways— as faithfully in certain ways, in a deeper way than just recording what happens during the day, because what you read is sort of where you are psychologically, emotionally. Um, I think you can't really untangle where you are in a story in your mind from where you are kind of physically in the world. And often where you are in a story is more where you want to be than where you are in reality. And um, And keeping this journal over time has really kind of I can reconstruct a narrative of my life in a way that I don't think I would have otherwise been able to do. You know how when you write down a dream right after you wake up, you could look back at that dream like even 24 hours later and be like, I don't even remember writing that down. Yes. You know, if you're still in that dream space, you're like, I don't recognize this. I don't recognize this person. When I look at my Bob, I remember all of it. I remember that. I remember where I bought that book, what it looked like, what it felt like, what I thought about it. I might not actually remember the plot of the book or even the names of the characters, but somehow that emotional experience must be so resonant that it just really sticks with me. And it also then in, in 
its entirety does show this narrative of like, oh, right, because I bought that when I was in China. And then I remember I flew home and I was in New York. And then I remember I went to the St. Mark's bookstore and I got that book. Mm. It was on the front table and I got it because it was only $7.99. And, you know, you can remember this whole layer of detail that otherwise you would, you know, would be lost. So it's become a a timestamp of sorts in your life. Um, You've likened Bob to Proust Madeleine capable of veritable time travel of bringing you back to the moment you were in when you read The Given Book. And I tried to do something similar, um, though not nearly as grand. Many years ago, I decided to recreate my childhood library and have nearly completed purchasing all the books. And I remember reading. I remember reading as a child, but I don't really remember the reading. I just know that I had them and they meant so much to me. It was really magical to reread the books that I read. Both It was both transformative and transporting at the same time. Did you have I Am a Bunny? No. Oh. no. I, I, now I'm tempted to ask what's on your childhood bookshelf. What a great idea. My favorite book of all is a book called Words, mm-hmm. which I actually have a, a beautiful, pristine copy of that I refound, um, the actual version that I had. Um, I also was a big young adult books person, so Mystery at Sturbridge Village, uh, The Girl Across the Way, um, Next Door to Xanadu, those books. And it took me a while to find them all, even um, – even after eBay, it took mm-hmm. a while. I was a big Catherine Woolley fan, uh, Madeline Langle, of course, um, and I have them all. I also really, really love the all of the all all of a kind family. I mean, that was a huge, huge series for me. See, I think your idea sounds rather grand to re- recreate it. Yes, it was. It's been helpful now with eBay. I mean, I remember looking in every bookstore, used bookstore I could find, um, for a book called Dot for Short. And I kept writing to the publisher, asking them to republish it. And then finally, one day, it appeared in a bookstore, republished. And I sort of felt responsible. <laughs> and I remember <laughs> and buying maybe it. maybe you were. I bought it at that moment I saw it, went outside of the bookstore, stood next to a light pole, and read it entirely from cover to cover outside on the street with my coat on. That's how much I needed to read those words again. <laughs> it brings you back. You wrote this in one of the early chapters of my life with Bob about writing in Bob. The immediacy of these recollections often startles me, whereas old diaries later read like transcribed dreams. Who wrote that? Was it really me who got so worked up, wanted that guy, obsessed about X? Book titles easily and accurately managed to evoke an earlier state of mind. Yes, I think, reading over the entries, I remember that. I remember that book jacket, that edition, the feel of those pages. For a girl who felt she lived more in the cozy world of books than in the unforgiving world of the playground, a book of books was the richest journal imaginable. It showed a version of myself I recognized and felt represented me. Pamela, this book of book of yours, it's almost like evidence of living. It really is. Thank you. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, as I've gotten older, I found myself saying over and over, how can I be in my 50s? I still feel like I'm 16. But several years ago, I moved apartments, and when I came across my childhood journals, I read through them all and realized, oh, my God, I'm not even the same human. I couldn't <laughs> believe what I was so obsessed about and what I was so agonized over and all of my obsessions. I was horrified and mortified. Um, I, I don't get that sense at all from my book of books. Yeah. I um, Actually, when I was researching the book, 
I did keep a few diaries. They were failed diaries. They would often just last like 15 pages. And I remember reading in one about some guy, and I thought, I don't even know who this is. And yet it went on for pages, and I was in my 20s. Like it Mm. wasn't, you know, I wasn't like 12. Um, (laughs) No clue. And yet I can look at the pages for my Bob when I'm in my 20s and everything returns. Do you think you'll ever share the entire contents of Bob with the world fully revealing your life at large? No, no way. You know, I did share it once with with one person because it was a funny thing. Um, before my life with Bob came out, um, but I it was, you know, almost fully written. I was editing a by the book with the writer Jeffrey Tubin. And in his by the book, he talked about how he had been keeping a journal of books um, for many years that he had taken it over. His father had kept it. And then he took it over when his father died. And I thought, oh, man, you're stealing my thunder, Jeff Tubin. Uh, and uh, so I was then I moderated a panel that he was on and I told him this. And, uh, and when the book came out, he read it and uh, he said, let's have lunch and we'll each bring our book of books. I was really nervous about it. First of all, Bob is old. Um, Bob is gray. And Bob, I think, is rotting away. I spilled coffee on him a long time ago. And it's just like fraying and sort of I don't know if he's moldering, but something about him looks awfully fragile. But I taped him up a little bit. Usually I just keep him at home. And I brought him in and uh, and Jeffrey uh, Tubin and I met and we each had our bobs. And it was really fun because his is old too. But we actually started them the same year, it turned out, in 1988. And we had many read many of the same books as it happened. But it felt like this kind of really intimate exchange of like you take, you know, I it was like nervous. I'm like, maybe I'll look at your bob first and then, you know, and then <laughs> so- I'll let you look at mine. Um, but uh, anyway, he got special dispensation. You, you've also written this in My Life with Bob about, about something like this. The prospect of losing Bob has become more vexing as he and I have gotten older. I no longer take him on trips. Now he stays safely at home and I tend to his pages as soon as I unpack, logging in the books read on planes and trains in between meetings. With each entry, I grow more guarded about his contents. I feel as protective of Bob as I do of myself. So, Pamela, my next question is a tad morbid, but bear with me. When a friend of mine found out that I was going to be interviewing you, he wondered, are you going to be buried with Bob, or will you pass it along to your children? Wow. Um, I'm, I'll pass it along, I think. Um, <laughs> you know, it's interesting because I um, was just asked by a library about um, would uh, they wanted to house my papers. And my immediate thought was, you know, in this day and age, like how many papers, physical papers does one have? Um, but that would certainly be a part of my paper, so I'll have to weigh that. Um, but I don't want to be buried, so I definitely don't want to have them burned <laughs> along with me no, in a crematorium. No, no. That would be an awful shame. Your husband once tweeted that you and your family were packing for a family vacation and included a photo showing a cache that included Artemis Fowl, the series of unfortunate events books, a National Geographic kids' weird but true book, and Ishiguro's Never Let Me Go. So I, I think it's safe to say your family shares your love of reading. Yeah, that was actually um, that was a trip we took last summer to South Dakota, and my daughter, who uh, just turned 13, uh, picked out the Ishiguro in the, this great bookstore, Mitzi's, in um, Rapid City, South Dakota, and decided to read it, um, which I think was her first grown-up book. 
Wow, um, that's pretty so that good. Exciting. <laughs> yes. She she predicted that Nobel Prize. Um, really? No, but uh, <laughs> but it was nice timing. Um, and uh, yeah, we went back to that Mitzi's bookstore like three or four times. My kids were not used to um, having books be so inaccessible. So we'd be like in the Badlands, uh, you know, hours away from Rapid City. And my kids were like, all right, I'm done. Let's go back to Mitzi's. And I was like, um, <laughs> it's not <laughs> <Road> next <trip>. door. <laughs> yeah. um, the last thing I want to talk to you about is um, your essays. Uh, you wrote an essay last year in the Times titled, Why You Should Read Books You Hate. You wrote this. Here's a reading challenge. Pick up a book you're pretty sure you won't like. The style is wrong, the taste not your own, the author bio unappealing. You might even take it one step further. Pick up a book you think you will hate, of a genre you've dismissed since high school, written by an author you're inclined to avoid. Now read it to the last bitter page. Sound like hell? You're off to a good start. So, Pamela, my question is this. Why? Why should we read books that we sort of know we're going to hate? Well, because I guess it goes back to that A to D versus E through Z thing, mm-hmm. which is that, you know, sometimes you don't know yourself as well as you think you do. And um, and sometimes, you know, you make a decision about yourself at an early age that might change over time. And what we want and need from books evolves over time. But I also think there's something about this particular moment where we are all much of our media is filtered, you know, it's we're not all tuning into the same, you know, radio stations. Uh, we have a jillion podcasts. We're not all, uh, you know, choosing among three or four broadcast television networks. We are picking our who we follow on Twitter. We're choosing, um, you know, what streaming service to use. And so we're all kind of narrow casting ourselves. And I think that you need to expose yourself to other viewpoints. And I think that that, uh, you know, and especially at a time where you're for the most part getting served up exactly what you want and expect. You need to overturn your expectations. And, you know, that is what reading is supposed to do. It's supposed to open up your mind. It's supposed to challenge you. Reading is supposed to make you uncomfortable. It's supposed – it's not supposed to – I mean, yes, there's comfort reading too. Um, And reading can be a great solace. But I think that, you know, reading should cause you to ask questions of yourself. And it should expose you to ways of thinking and expressing uh, oneself that you might not have thought of and that you might have assumed you wouldn't – want to hear, but that's exactly why I think you should hear it. You quoted Kafka in My Life with Bob, and I'd like to share that quote with you because I think it's so beautiful. Um, He says, I think we ought to read only the kinds of books that wound and stab us. If the book we're reading doesn't wake us up with a blow on the head, what are we reading it for? We need the books that affect us like a disaster, that grieve us deeply, like the death of someone we loved more than ourselves, like being banished into forests far from everyone, like a suicide. A book must be the axe for the frozen sea inside us. Yeah, you know, it's funny. When people look at the first book in my uh, book of books and they're like, Kafka, like, but you were 17. Like, that's sort of, you know, a pretentious or precocious or whatever. I mean, Kafka is like, that's adolescence right there, you know. It's dark and questioning and uh, tormented. So You also quote Jeanette Winterston. Actually, you quote Jeanette Winterston's mother, who once who once admonished her by saying, the trouble with books is that you don't know what's in them until it's too late. And I wonder, do you ever regret reading a book? I regretted reading one. You know, no. I mean, look, 
it's I always think about the one thing I took away from Econ 111 in college, which was the one economics class I took, was the idea of opportunity costs, which is that every amount of time that you dedicate to doing something else, it's not just the cost of that, but it's the cost of what you could have been doing during that time instead. And, you know, any busy person, like, makes that calculus. So, you know, The Fountainhead is a book that I absolutely despise by Ayn Rand. Um, I, I, I hate it with all of my heart. And yet I can't say I fully regret it because it's like theater. You know, you need to see bad theater in order to appreciate the good. Same thing with art. And uh, if I hadn't read that, I don't think that I had could uh, – first of all, the prose is terrible. It's like, don't eat, strudel across the room. and um, But also the ideas in it I found to be kind of morally reprehensible. And I don't think that, you know – just reading about sort of her philosophy uh, in an article could have gotten at exactly where I think that philosophy takes you, and and I wouldn't have it it wouldn't have affected me on that level. I mean, that's another reason why I think it's is important to read things that you hate, and not just you know an opinion piece or a news story, but a full length book and read it to the end. Is that books offer you a kind of depth and context and long term perspective that you don't get in twelve hundred words or fifteen hundred words or even 5,000 words. Um, And sometimes you need to really sit with something um, and immerse yourself in it to really understand why you like it or, as is often the case, you don't like it. Pamela Paul, thank you so much for being on Design Matters today. And thank you for invigorating the world with your writing and your editing and, of course, the really, really wonderful book review. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Pamela Paul's latest book is My Life with Bob, Flawed Heroine Keeps Book of Books, Plot Ensues. You can also listen to her great podcast, The Book Review, on iTunes and online at thenewyorktimes.com. This is the 13th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our new Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash debbie-millman. That's d.rip slash debbie-millman. If you want others to know about this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded live at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland. Generous support for Design Matters Media is provided by Wix.com.